Uh, Why don't I pray and then we'll get into this passage. So, Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that um, actually in the passage we're looking at today, it really shows us what it is to be a church. And so, Lord, would you encourage us in that? Would you unify us through it? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, when Emmy and I came uh, to meet you guys uh, last January, so not this past January, it was January before, uh, we had a sort of day after, uh, the Monday after the Sunday that we were with all of you guys. Um, We uh, we went for a little walk around Echo Park Lake uh, because we heard, hey, that's a cool place to go for a walk. So we did. And we were really impressed by something. There, at the time, there were only maybe 10 tents set up near the, the playground area. And we were like, how cool of a community is this? How unified of a community is this? That there's like some people that are living in a tent there, and then families are bringing their children, and they're on the playground, and then there's some people getting some food over there, and everyone's just kind of hanging out together. Now, how naive were we? <laughs> because we come back uh, all, about eight months later in August, and... 10 tents had turned into 100. And that whole community had changed and transformed. Um, And what we thought was a place of unity actually had become, I don't know if it was then, but it had become in those eight months, uh, something that actually has divided the community. And so back in December, there was an article in Los Angeles Magazine called The Homeless Republic of Echo Park. And in it, it talked about two ways this tent city is dividing the community. So I'm not making a comment on whether or not I agree they should be there or not. I'm not that's not what my, my goal here. What I want us to see is actually that something that's set out to be a place of unity ends up bringing division. Uh, and so one of the ways is with homeowners, so people that own homes in the area around the lake that overlook it and live in that neighborhood. Some go down and they give food. So they say, hey, there's people here who have needs that need to be met. And so they make food, they buy food, they take it down, they take resources down, they give it to them. Um, and others, on the other hand, are lobbying the city to get it removed. And so there's one person who was interviewed that said a neighbor that he's known for years, a friend, someone who they like, they do stuff together, they're friends. Uh, because this is happening, they're no longer friends. It's actually divided their friendship. They're neighbors. They used to hang out together. They used to do things together, and now they're not friends anymore. So that's one way that this uh, area that is was sort of set up to try and bring unity is actually brought division. Uh, secondly, if you read the article, it talks about what's happening inside the tent city, how the relationships are going there. And so in that in the area, I think this is kind of funny, there's an area called Hipster Beach. Uh, it's a part of the, the lake, it's now called Hipster Beach. Um, and only certain types of people within the community, in that tent community, are allowed to hang out there. So if you're not, I guess, hipster, you can't hang out there. You actually almost get shunned and, and sort of pushed away from that, that part of the park. Um, and the article actually goes even further. It talks about how there's a couple of ex-cons who are known as the enforcers. And so their job is to kick out any people who try and move in who don't really fit in with the people who are there. And so what's that telling us? Yeah, I'm not making a comment on whether or not I think they should be there or not. But what's that telling us? But even, I think it's telling us even our attempts at creating cultures, places, communities of inclusion and unity end up dividing us. That's what happens. Uh, so even with the best possible motives, we end up bringing division. Because whenever you create an us, right, whenever you commit, create a community that's this is us, you inevitably create a them. What does that mean? Well, have you ever tried out for a team? Have you ever applied for a job? Did you ever get welcomed into a new circle of friends? That, that's an us. You're now, you're in. You're in that community. That's an us. Uh, 
Not everyone made the team. Not everyone got hired. Not everyone was welcome into the friend group. Now, this isn't to say that creating an us, in other words, creating community is bad. In fact, normally creating community is a good thing. That's actually a thing that we should all be wanting to do, that belonging to something, to a community is a good thing. So, but when you do that, there will always be an us. And by definition, then, there will always be a them. And the problem in this comes uh, when one community, one us, treats a them poorly. So you have one community treating another community poorly, actually even maybe trying to exclude the other community. Um, and so there's a huge problem when one race treats another race as inferior, when the wealthy treat the poor as inferior, when the educate, educated treats the uneducated as inferior. And by the way, that can go both ways. And I've seen that and I've experienced that going both directions. And so the problem comes when one community treats another one poorly, when one tries to exclude the other. Uh, Miroslav Volf, he's a, a theologian and a Yale professor uh, who watched his home country of Yugoslavia violently tear itself apart by three groups of people who hated one another. It became three countries uh, after the war. And he says that as he watched that, he learned that there's at least four ways we can exclude others. One is we can kill them, so we can re remove them entirely. And that, if you read about the war that happened there, you'll know that that was one of the goals of, of at least one of those people groups. Uh, the second way, so one way you can exclude others is to kill them. Uh, the second way is you can assimilate them. And this is way more subtle than killing. This is just saying, I'm going to erase your culture. I'm going to erase your distinctiveness. And you can come and be part of what I do. So you assimilate them in. That's actually a way of, of excluding people. Uh, you don't allow any differences. The third way is you can dominate them. So you say, well, you can stay, but uh, you must be inferior. So you don't get all the same privileges as everyone else. Uh, you don't get the same rights. And the fourth way is you can ignore them. You can almost pretend like they don't exist, pretend like they're not there. Uh, now, what the book of Ephesians shows us and the passage we're looking at today is that Christians have a way of being unified with people who are very, very, very different from each other. That Christians have a way um, that means there can be an us and a them without treating the other as inferior, without excluding others. Uh, Christianity even has a way of embracing and celebrating diversity. It doesn't try to kill, doesn't try to assimilate, dominate, or ignore any culture, any race, any dividing line that you can think of. And that's what we're going to see in this passage uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, that Daniel read to us. And uh, as, as with all these uh, passages in the first half of Ephesians, there's so much in each one, we can't possibly cover everything. So we're not going to cover everything, so we just have to pick one theme. And because it's one of our core values uh, as a church, we're sticking with the theme of renewal. And what we've been seeing so far is that renewal is possible for everyone. Everyone can bring renewal in some way. And that renewal always works its, its way from the outside in. And that's what we've been learning about renewal. And so, so far, Paul has talked a lot about the individual. How does the individual person experience this renewal in Jesus Christ? Well, in this passage, he shifts his attention to a whole church, to a church that is uh, being renewed. Uh, it's a, a church is a renewed community. A group of renewed individuals, renewed in Christ, make up this renewed community. And so here's what we're going to see in today's passage. A renewed community, in other words, a church, is a deeply united community made up of very different people united to one another through Christ. Now, those are our three points. I'll come back to them as we go, but those are our three points. Uh, so first, a renewed community is a deeply united community. Now, if you jump to the last paragraph... Uh, in our passage, you'll see this deeply unified community described. Uh, and it actually uses three images. It uses a country, a family, and a building. 
uh, and the kind of building specifically is a temple. And each of these images is a way of describing a Christian church. So let's look at them. Uh, the first one there is a country. Uh, look again at the start of verse 19. Uh, it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Just talking about a country. Now, I brought with me today uh, my passport. Um, if you want to look at the picture later, it's fine. It, I do look somewhat like I should be in... Oh, no, it's a different picture. Never mind. My old one, I looked like I should be in prison. This one is all right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think most of you know that I mean, I lived in England for seven years. And what this passport tells you, even though it's kind of rubbed off the front, is that I'm a citizen of the United States of America. Which means I have complete and full access to all the rights and privileges that any other U.S. citizen has. And in fact, when I'd come back to visit, when we were living overseas, uh, pretty much every time we came through as the border agent stamped my passport and handed it back, uh, they'd say, welcome home. Which was nice. You know, they're, they're saying, this is your home. This is, this is where you belong. You're, you have all the rights of being here. Uh, I didn't receive the same treatment every time I arrived back in England, however. <laughs> Uh, every time I arrived back in England, I had to pull out this card, which is my resident permit. That's a pretty bad picture. Uh, I'd pull out this card, and uh, this card basically says that I have the right to be there. So I can enter. They can't stop me from entering the country. I have the right to be there. Uh, but I have to carry this card with me. And this card basically says that I have the right to be there. I have the right to live there. But it very clearly states on the front that I'm not a citizen. Uh, it's a resident permit, not a citizenship permit. And it even says on the front, restricted work. That I, I can't actually do everything that any person who lives there can do. I can actually only do a certain job. Emmy's I brought as well. Hers is really funny. It says, restricted work, no doctor or dentist training. So she's only allowed to do anything but train as a doctor or dentist, apparently. Uh, and then on the back, it even says more. It says, uh, no public funds. So what it means is I, I can be in that place. I can live there, but I, I don't have all the rights. I don't have everything uh, that a citizen has. And so I wasn't a citizen, I was a foreigner, I was a stranger, and I was treated that way every time I entered the country. Now, what this text is saying in verse 19 is that someone who is a Christian is at home in the church. The church is their home. And so what it's saying is that the Christian has all the rights of being a citizen of heaven, and so therefore the church is their home while here on earth. You could almost think of it like an embassy or consulate, that when you enter onto that property, you're, you're, you're in your home. That's your home country. And so the church is your home here on earth. In fact, we learn in Philippians that when someone becomes a Christian, yes, they remain a citizen of their earthly country, but that citizenship becomes secondary. The, the Christian's primary citizenship, it says, is in heaven. That's your home country. And so uh, not only are we, uh, not only is the church our home, our home country, but it goes on in verse 19 to say that you're members of God's household. That's the next thing it says, which is another way of saying uh, that a Christian is part of God's family. And so in the church, we're not just acquaintances we're, actually, we're not even just friends. Friendship isn't strong enough to describe it. We're God's family. And the Bible uses this metaphor all the time to describe a church. Uh, and why is that? Well, back in verse 18, it says that God is our father. And so we're a family because we all have the same father. But also, if you remember back in chapter 1, it says that God the Father adopted us. 
And so we're fellow citizens and we're brothers and sisters with the same father. Then thirdly, it says that a church, a renewed community is like a building. And not just any building. Look at verse 21. It says, we're like a building that is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Now the image here is that we're like building blocks, one placed on top of the other. Uh, Each one is integral to the whole. And so you take one out and it starts to crumble. That's the picture that Paul's trying to bring up in your mind when he says this. And the thing I want you to notice about all three of these uh, metaphors is that they get more and more personal as you go. Uh, None of them is enough on their own to give you uh, the whole picture of what a church is. It's not enough to say only that a church is a country. Uh, because if you say that, it only thinks about your rights. And it's not enough to say that a church is only like a family, because if you say that, then it only thinks about your relationships. Uh, and if you, it's not enough to say a church is like a building or a temple either. You need all three to get the full picture. And look at notice the picture that it paints for us. Each metaphor shows us that renewal comes from the outside in, because each metaphor moves closer and closer into a person from the outside in. In other words, look at how the church relates to God. A king lives in the same country with his citizens. But a father lives in the same house with his children. And here's where this metaphor really shines and shows how renewal works from the outside in. When this passage says that we are being built as God's temple, what that's really saying is that we are being built to be the place where God himself dwells. And so a king lives in his country, a father lives in his house, and a God lives inside of his temple. And he says the church is his temple, being built together, rising up like a temple. And so you see it's from the outside all the way in, and that's why we need all three metaphors. But then look at how it builds on our relationships with one another in the church. So how is my relationship connected to you and you to me and to everyone else in here? Well, look how it builds there too. In a country, I'm connected to all my neighbors through my citizenship, right? We all live under the same constitution, celebrate the same holidays, and in very, 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 very broad strokes, Uh, we have the same values. So there's a social connection. In a family, it's tighter. In a family, I'm connected to my brothers and sisters through blood or through adoption. But in a building, the bricks are cemented together, and that's about as close as you can get. They're actually physically joined together. Now, we're going to come back to this at the end, but here's where I want to leave us at point one. I want to leave you just with a couple of questions to ponder. Uh, If you're not a Christian, I want you to see that this is what you enter into when you become a Christian. You're not saved into isolation. Salvation is never just you and God. You're saved into the church. You're saved into a new home, a new family, and God himself takes up residence within you. That's what the text is saying. Now, a church on this side of heaven will always be imperfect. It will always be imperfect. Uh, But it's still a home and it's still a family where God himself dwells. Now, if you are a Christian, I want you to consider this. Do any of these metaphors describe your relationship to the church? Is it your home? Is it your family? Is it the place where you believe God is present in our midst when we gather? Do any of those metaphors describe your relationship to the church, your home, your family, the place where you meet with God? Because if you did, how would that shape the way you engage with church? 
We'll come back to that. And let's be honest, if you've been part of a local church for any length of time, of time say more than even a couple months, you, you very quickly begin to see that though these metaphors are wonderful, no local church ever really completely lives this out in an ideal way. Uh, that, that no church actually fully does this. Why? Why don't, we, why don't we live up to that potential? Well, that leads to the second point. Churches are always made up of very different people. And so church is a, uni- a unified community of very, very different people. Um, now, to really get into this, we need to do a little bit of history. We need to understand a little bit of what things were like in the ancient world. And by the way, as we do that, we'll see it really wasn't much different than today. Um, back in verses 11 and 12, Paul talks about two groups of people. He talks about the Jews and he talks about the Gentiles. And in this passage, he calls uh, them uh, the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, and the circumcised, that's the Jews. So he's talking about these two groups of people. Uh, and they did not get along. These two groups of people did not get along at all. And Paul, Paul points that out in this passage in verse 14 when he explains that there was a barrier. He calls it the dividing wall of hostility. Now, in short, what was happening between these two groups in history is that both groups were excluding the other. Remember the four ways that I said Miroslav Volf said groups can exclude one another. You can kill them, you can assimilate them, you can dominate them, or you could ignore them. And if you read any ancient history from this time, you don't have to read the Bible to find this, any ancient history from this time, you'll see that both groups at different times were doing one or more of these four things to the other. And so these two groups hated each other. Do you see that in verse 12? It says the Gentiles were, look at this, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. And so the Jews were excluding the Gentiles. There was no way of making the two groups one. And and we know from history that the Gentiles were known for killing the Jews. They took over their land. They tried to assimilate them or dominate them. And so to the Jews, the Gentiles were always inferior, always excluded. And to the Gentiles, the Jews were always inferior, always excluded. They were always coming up with different ways to exclude the other people. It was an us-them. And that's precisely what Paul is addressing in this passage. Now, that's really not that different to today, is it? In fact, it seems that every day there are more and more dividing walls of hostility being built. Conservative, liberal. White, black. Rich, poor. Uneducated, educated. Woke, unwoke. Old, young. Historic faith, deconstructed faith, right? We're constantly coming up with ways of dividing ourselves. It's almost impossible to keep up with the ways because we continue to, to find more. And uh, I've even been excluded, in other words, thought inferior, based on the kind of coffee that I like to drink. Like, people have actually said, oh, I'm, okay, I'm going to move on from this conversation because you are okay with gas station coffee. Uh, that's a small, tiny example of it, but, but we're constantly finding these ways to exclude. And so what Paul's talking about isn't that different from what we live each day. Now, what Paul is showing us here is that the church is made up of these very different kinds of people. People who are very, very different from one another. People who could be described as being divided by hostility towards one another. But did you notice what's happened between the two groups? Did you see and hear what Paul says about them? Look again with me. Verse 13 Uh, Gentiles, you were separated, excluded, treated as foreigners. There was an us, them, and then verse 13. But now, 
In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now what's that telling us? The ones who were excluded, who were kept far away, have been brought near. In other words, think of the metaphor from verse 19. They're no longer foreigners. They're no longer strangers. The two groups are now citizens of the same country. And look what else happened between these two groups. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. And so they're no longer two groups, they're one group. There's no more us and them. Again, keep in mind the metaphors from verse 19, the two have become like one family. Well, there's more. Keep reading verse 14. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And so now it's as if God is tearing down the dividing walls and using the bricks from the dividing wall to build a unified building where he can dwell, a temple. And so our understanding of a renewed community of a church is getting more and more filled here as we go. A renewed community is a deeply united community made up of very, very different people who share a home, who share a family, who share a God. Now, what does that mean practically? Let me, let me get really practical with it. Well, first it means that people who, uh, outside the church, if they weren't Christians, uh, that you would be friends inside the church. So people who outside the church, like you'd never be friends ever. Like you just, there's no reason for you to even know each other. Inside the church, not only can you know each other, but you can be friends. And actually, even more than that, you can be brothers and sisters. That's what this text is telling us. Is that you can actually be brother and sister with people who are very, very, very different from you. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like what friendship looks like. What do you do with your friends? You have meals together. What do you do with your friends? You, you hang out together. What do you do with your, with your friends? You serve each other, right? Someone needs help moving and you come and help them move. Uh, what, what, what else do you do with your friends? It means you show them hospitality. You have them in your home. You take them to your favorite restaurant. It means you, you pray for them. It means taking them a meal when they're in crisis. It means dropping by just to say hello. It, it means asking them for advice. People who are very different from you, you can do that. And so it means that all the things that it means for friendship with people who look like you, who talk like you, who think like you, are actually applied to people who are very, very different from you. And that's what that's what happens inside the church. But secondly, it means that actually we're willing to bear with one another. It means that when the person who is different from you says or does something that annoys you, that frustrates you, that challenges you, you're actually able to bear with them. You're actually able to say, well, do you know what? My, my relationship with them, the unity that I share with them is not based on their opinions. It's not based on whether or not I even like them. It's based on something deeper than that. I'm committed to them like I'm committed to a family member. And then thirdly, it means you don't let preferences become the marker of whether or not our church is healthy. And so, for example, music style is not a marker of a healthy church. You don't, you don't know if a church is good or not by the kind of music they have. That's just not how it works. Or the preaching, or the welcome minister, or whatever it is. You see, what makes a healthy church is not if you like the music or not. What makes a healthy church, what, what tells you something is healthy, is when there are people who are very, very different from each other who love each other. That's how you know if a church is healthy. And if that's going on, when your friends come, 
That, by the way, is what will bring them back. Not if they like the music, not if they like the preaching, but if they felt loved by someone who was really different from them. They can sense a unity amongst people who are very, very different from each other. So how do we get there? What's at the heart of that? How, how are the far brought near? How are the two made one? So much so that they'd be willing to serve and love someone very, very, very different from them. Well, that's our third point. A renewed community is a deeply unified community made up of very different people who are, thirdly, united to one another through Christ. Now, notice what the passage says. Well, actually, first notice what it does not say. Okay, it does not say they found some common ground and they made a gate in the wall that was dividing them and they're like, hey, you can come over here sometimes and I'll go over there sometimes and we'll just kind of do that. That's not what it says. It does not say the two groups erased one another's culture to become one. It didn't, doesn't say that, you know, uh, there's, there's no more distinctiveness between these people. It actually doesn't say that either of the two groups did anything to end the hostility Notice what it says, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. It says that Jesus Christ brought those who are far away near. It says that Jesus Christ destroyed the barrier. Jesus Christ destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. And remember what we've been saying, renewal is always from the outside in. And so how did he do that? Well, keep reading. There's a lot in verse 15, but he summarizes it in verse 16. How did he do it? Verse 16, in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And did you notice what that says? Did you, let me read it again. In one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So it says that both parties, both Jews and Gentiles, actually needed to be reconciled to God. Both parties. And in verse 17, it says that Jesus came to preach peace to both of them. And so here's what this is telling us. You see, we see ourselves as either superior or inferior to another group of people. But God sees everyone differently. Jesus preached peace to both, which means both groups were far away from God. And sure, it seems that one was closer to God than the other, but actually it says here that both needed to be reconciled to God. Both rejected God. Both groups, the Jews and the Jews, they both rejected God. And so both are lost. And so when it says that it was by the cross he put to death the hostility between the two parties, what that's saying is that before God, both groups are equal. The religious ones and the non-religious ones. Both needed saving. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son in in Luke 15? A father has two sons. Remember this story? And one son rebels against the father. He takes his inheritance and he runs away and he squanders it um, and ends up destitute. He's got nothing. And he's like, even the the pigs eat better than I'm eating in my father's farm. And so he decides that he's going to go back and try and at least become a servant there. Uh, But he has an older brother. And the older brother is the one who he honors the father, right? He stays there. He does the work. He's... He's the, he's the good son. Um, and uh, the younger son, the one who squandered everything, comes back. And the father sees him out on the road. He runs and he reinstates him. He gives him a ring and a robe. And, and he says, this is my son. And he throws him a party. And the other one, who was the obedient one, he actually he leaves the party. So the party's going on. He leaves the party. Uh, the father was so generous to the younger brother. And what you find out in the end is that both sons are lost. 
It was obvious that the younger son was lost. It wasn't so obvious that the older son was lost, but what you find out when the father goes out to talk to the older son, that the older son was lost all along. You see, he was trying to please, he was trying to earn the father's love. He was trying to please him so that the father would give him stuff. And the father comes and he's like, everything that I have is yours. And so both are lost. The younger one rebelled by being disobedient, and the older one, believe it or not, rebelled by being obedient. And what that story is meant to show is that we're all one son or the other. We've all rebelled. Some of us did it by disobedience. We turned our backs on God by saying, I don't want to follow any of his rules. I'll do what I want when I want. And others rebelled by being obedient. We try to earn God's love. And that's the religious person. The religious person tries to earn their way to God through good behavior and through morals. And what this text is saying in Ephesians 2 is that Jesus Christ came to preach to both. Both sons. Both the moral and the immoral. Because both need saving. And here's, here's how the cross brings both together. Here's how the cross does it. When both parties recognize that they need saving, when both parties recognize that they're broken, that they're lost, when both parties recognize they've rebelled against God and they need to be reconciled, that is what forms the basis. That is what says the dividing wall of hostility is brought down and the two can be brought uh, together as one. Because both recognize their need for salvation, so both come to God in the same way. And so it's not as if one group is better because they follow the law or one group is better because they just kind of do what they want. So both need saving. And what Jesus Christ did at the cross is save both. That's why I can say that Jesus ended their hostility by the cross. Because both parties now can say this. They can say, what, you too? They can look at someone so utterly different from them and they can say, what, you too? Let's put it like this. Your enemy can become your friend through the cross. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, he describes friendship love like this. Uh, he says, friendship arises out of mere companionship. When two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure. And then listen to this. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. And what this text is saying is that every single sinner saved by grace through faith can say to every other sinner saved by grace through faith, no matter how very, very, very different they might be, they can say to each other, what, you too? And that's how the cross destroys the dividing wall of hostility. I can say it to someone of any race, any nationality, any socioeconomic status, any family situation. You name the dividing wall of hostility. And if another person has been saved by grace through faith in Christ, I can say, what, you too? And that person is my brother. That person is my sister. That's how Jesus Christ puts to death the hostility between very, very different people through the cross. Now, can I just get really practical about uh, what all this means for us? Uh, I'm just going to do that very briefly. Uh, if you're not a Christian, I want to talk to you for just a minute. Uh, Jesus Christ came to make peace between you and God. That's the reason he came. And so do you feel like he's hostile towards you, or do you, are you hostile towards him? 
Or do you feel like God's been giving you the cold shoulder? Or, or maybe have you been giving God the cold shoulder? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took the hostility. He took the cold shoulder so that if you put your faith in him, he'll reconcile you to God. Or as it says in verse 14, that through his blood, he'll bring you near to God. And so when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he removes the hostility. He takes away the cold shoulder so that he can bring you near to God. And there's no other way to come to God except through faith in Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, I want to talk to you for just a minute, because here's what this passage is saying about the church. It's saying that the church is actually, it's a gift to you. The church is a gift to you. It's not just, it's not an annoyance. It's not a thing that you have to do. It's a gift to you. And think about it. You now have a home. You now have a family. You have a community in which God's very presence dwells. That when you're together, you actually can experience the presence of God as these different building blocks are brought together. Like a temple. And so don't spurn that gift. Don't spurn that gift. Embrace it. Love it. Make it your home. Make it your family. Care for it like you care for your own home. Invest in it like you invest in your own home. Treat the members of the church like family because when we do that, it becomes more and more evident that God's presence is here. You see how that works? Well, not only is it a gift to us, but this church can be a gift for your friends. Invite them, welcome them, introduce them. Let me, I'm going to illustrate this uh, with a story and then, and then I'll be done. Um, the church can be a gift for your friends. When I was about 12 or 13 year old, years old, uh, our neighbors invited us to church. We were not a church-going family. Uh, we had Sunday morning was like sleep-in time and get ready for NFL games um, or whatever else was going to be on sports-wise that day. That's what Sundays were for for us. We were not a church family. We had no interest at all. At least I didn't. But we had some neighbors down the street, and they were. They were Christians. And they were actually helping start a new church in town, not unlike what we're doing here. And so they were part of a small group of people, maybe about 25 people, who were helping us start a new church in town. And one week they invited my mom and stepdad to come to church with them. Now, I can imagine that they did that with some nervousness. I can imagine they did that with some fear and trepidation. I can imagine they did that uh, with some worry that our family would say no or that it would somehow create a strangeness in the relationship and maybe uh, like my parents wouldn't allow us to play with their kids or something. I, I can imagine they had all that going on inside of them. But none of that happened. Instead, my parents said yes, and we went. And that totally changed my life, changed my whole family's trajectory. Most of my immediate family became Christians. And like, if you want to, if you really want to get sort of existential about it and connect it all together, I'm here today because of that invitation. Because our neighbors were like, hey, we're starting this church and wondering if you want to come. What were they doing when they did that? What were they doing? Were they doing anything extraordinary? Were they doing anything hard? No, they, they were just offering a gift and it changed our lives completely for the better because we who were far away from God were then brought near. 
It gave us salvation. It gave us a purpose in life. It gave us friends who became a family. And, and I'm standing here because of that simple invitation. All because they said to my parents one day, hey, we're going to this new church that's getting started in town. Do you want to come? Can you do that? Can I do that? Yeah, we can do that. I think we can. And imagine the lives that can be changed as we do. Just who is far away from God in your life that needs to be brought near? Ask God to show you. And then ask them to church. Just ask them to come. Because you never know what God will do through a really, really simple invitation. And so this text opens all that up for us. The church is a gift to us from God. It gives us a home. It gives us a family. It's the place where his presence dwells. And it's a gift that we can share with other people. And so let's not spurn that gift and let's not hoard it and keep it for ourselves. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for how it really challenges us, um, for how it really pushes us to say uh, we could be united with people who are very, very different from us. And so, Father, would you help us with that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.